Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 135 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 25th of January 2015, entitled The Genesis Account, Part 12, The Atonement for Sin. And the Bible reading is taken from Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 24. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. Okay, if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to take our reading this morning from Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, and reading down through verse 24. I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's precious and holy word, again beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. The Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? He said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? The man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? The woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And to Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shalt it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. The sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thy return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And to Adam also and to his wife did the Lord make coats of skins and clothed them. The Lord God said, Behold, The man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Father, We thank you again this morning that, yes, we can be gathered together here for health and strength in this place that we have to meet for each one that has come this way. But, Lord, we thank you for your word that we have before us that you've preserved for us. 
for your spirit that lives within, which is able to give us understanding this day, which is able to speak to the hearts of men and women and boys and girls here today, that which is impossible for us or any man to speak. So, Father, we commit this time into your hands. We pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, for your glory and for yours alone, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Give each one that that they most need. Help our lives, each one of us, Lord, to be changed. Those that might be here that don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, may they come to know him personally today. For every Christian, may we leave here a bit more like our Savior than when we came. We give you all the praise for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. Of course, we have read these verses before, and we've looked at a number of things from even from Genesis chapter 3. As we look at why that we say that the Genesis account, the book of beginnings in God's Word, is vital and fundamental to our Christian faith. And as we have looked, even in just these first few chapters, we have seen that it's foundational and fundamental to a clear understanding of the authority of God's Word, the assertion of God's existence, the absoluteness of God's creation, the advancement of the human race, the accountability of mankind, the administration of home life, the acuteness of man's fall, and last week, the abolishment of Satan, our great enemy. It's really quite incredible when you begin to consider that there are many today even that would claim to be part of the Christian faith that do not believe that the Genesis account is essential to our faith, that it is essential to believe what thus saith the Lord. It's incredible when you begin to consider the importance of every one of these foundational truths that we have seen laid for us here in the book of beginnings, in the book of Genesis. And I remind you again, as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 11, verse 3, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Folks, if the foundations are destroyed out from under our faith and our belief and our Christian faith, the question remains, what can we do? What one of these vital doctrines that we've seen already, just in these first few chapters, which one would you choose to have destroyed because the foundation is destroyed beneath it? Which one of these could you live without? (laughs) Could life go on and be just as good uh, without it? Which one? is not so important to our lives and to our faith that it need not have a strong foundation under it. I say once again that, in fact, when you begin to undermine any part of God's truth, you undermine the whole. We've said many times that it's either if it is authoritative at all, 
It is authoritative in all. You can't pick and choose what you want. And I just want to remind you this morning and hope that it's a great encouragement to you that there is another great Bible doctrine that has its very foundation laid for us right here in Genesis chapter 3 and can certainly be said to be at the very heart of our Christian faith that is the atonement of sin. The atonement of sin. I would direct your attention back in our reading we have seen here this morning that God has come into the Garden of Eden immediately following man's sin, man's fall, man's disobedient to him. And of course, as God comes and begins to talk, man is hiding because of his nakedness, because of his sin. We find that God begins to ask questions not for himself, but for the sake of mankind. And of course, as he asks those questions here in the midst, he begins. And we'll look at some of those things a little bit closer later, but he begins his judgment upon sin right there in the garden. And he deals with Satan, and he deals with the woman, and he deals with man. But what is so exciting for us is that, yes, Sin brings judgment. It was God himself that warned them before it ever happened that if they ate of that fruit, they would surely die. They didn't do this in ignorance. They knew what the consequences were. We find that in the midst of all of this, though, we find that God had set something else in place. (laughs) There in verse 21, he said, Unto Adam also... And to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them? What do we mean when we talk about this term atonement for sin? Well, you see, atonement has to do with reconciliation. In fact, Atonement is the means by which reconciliation is accomplished. We use the term sometimes not trying to oversimplify, but to help us remember atonement at one meant. Being made at one with God, our creator. Atonement is about us being reconciled to God. It's the means whereby we can, after having been separated, be made at one with him once again. Now, exactly how all that works is a subject that Christians and great theological minds have debated throughout the centuries, and they've come up with many, many varying theories as to exactly how it works. But one thing that all agree on, that's the necessity of it. The necessity of the atonement is not in question. Consider for just a moment what we have already seen here in Genesis chapter 3. And we looked at some things earlier, but what we've seen most recently 
is enough to where that we could clearly state that Genesis chapter 3 is the very foundational basis, listen, for the whole doctrine of salvation. The last two areas that we looked at in this chapter were the acuteness, the seriousness, the depths of man's fall when he sinned. And then, of course, last week, the abolishment of Satan. We considered the severity and the extremities of man's fall and the consequence of death that we saw was passed to all mankind. We said that the abolishment of Satan that we can rejoice over that we looked at last week is it's a fundamentally important doctrine and it's one that we can rejoice in. But his destruction alone is not sufficient. Doing away with Satan after the fact, after what's happened in the garden, it may destroy our enemy, but it doesn't destroy sin and its consequences. And of course, we looked at that all-important question last week of why does God allow Satan to even continue on? Why hasn't he already wiped him out? You see, I said earlier that God made those consequences clear back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. God told Adam clearly, if you disobey me, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Death. So something else is needed because death has already come. What are we saying is that because of the acuteness of man's fall, and even though that Satan is going to be abolished one day and done away with forever, that's something else that's needed is the atonement. We were separated from God because of sin. To atone, it has to do with making amends for something. It speaks of two things that are divided, that have been separated, being reconciled, being brought back together again when amends are made to make that possible. You see, when we look at the two great truths, on the one hand, of the holiness of God and of the sinfulness of man, the atonement becomes an absolute necessity. You can't get farther apart than that. And for those to be brought together, something has to happen. So what is so important here in Genesis relating to that something, relating to that atonement, relating to that act which brings man and God back together again? Consider this. If there was no fall, as we have read in Genesis then there is no condemnation. If there was no condemnation, then there is no separation of God and man. If there's no separation, then there's no need for reconciliation. If there's no need to be reconciled. There's no need for redemption. 
If there's no need for redemption, then there's no need for the incarnation for God to come in the flesh to this world. If we don't need the incarnation, we don't need the crucifixion. If we don't need it, we don't need the resurrection. In fact, we don't need salvation at all. Don't let men say it's not important. It is vital. It's foundational. If you remove sin, then nothing here is necessary. Nothing. Without sin, no atonement is needed. But because of sin, the atonement is essential. In Genesis chapter 3, following the fall of man and his estrangement with God, that separation that took place because of that sin, I want you to notice that, yes, sin must be judged. God warned beforehand. He's carrying that out. But right in the midst of God's judgment, when he's dealing it out, Satan, Adam and Eve, and all of creation, just prior to man being expelled from the garden, what does God do? He shows man the greatest mercy that he could possibly show him. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God himself make coats of skins and clothed them. God put them there without sin in this perfect environment. God knew what man would do. He knew his failings. He knew what would happen. But God had a plan in place. You see, in what we just read, because of sin, man was no longer fit to even be in God's presence. God himself, in his great mercy, man is there hiding from the very presence of God. God provides him with a garment to cover that sinful flesh to cover his nakedness and all the sin that went with it. Why? So that he might be able to once again be in the presence of his creator. You see, that garment that he supplies here in verse 21, even though that that was only a temporary garment, it was symbolic. It was symbolic of the permanent covering which, of course, we know is the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Even here, that covering that allowed for man's atonement, that allowed him to even come back into the presence of God, required the shedding of blood of the creature that became the covering. God himself took the first life in the garden so that man's sin could be covered we find that man is indicted for his sin, but then he's offered a means to be reconciled to his creator by the shedding of blood and a covering that is applied. This is all pictured, this is all seen right here in the garden itself. 
in Romans chapter 3, we find the same thing. Remember what happened here in Genesis chapter 3? Well, man is indicted for his sin. In Romans chapter 3, one of the strongest indictments that all men has for his sin. Beginning in verse 9, it says, What then, are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying just, just as when that first sin was committed in the Garden of Eden, just as we saw how that that sin was passed to all mankind, we have here the indictment of man in his sin. Well, what happened? What followed that indictment of sin there in the garden? God supplied a covering to atone for man's sin. Well, notice what happens here. But now, he says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. We've just seen man in his sinfulness and absolutely nothing that he can do about it. He can't be good enough. He can't correct it enough. He can't do enough good. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You see, all are indicted for their sins but all are offered the means of atonement. If we look back into Genesis chapter 3, notice 
what he said there. Verse 19. He says, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Truth is, is that man was suffering some phenomenal consequences because of his sin. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. You see, he clothed them in the garden. The promise today is to all who believe. God will clothe not in man's righteousness, but in the very righteousness of God himself. We don't have time to even talk about this, but if you'll notice back in Revelation, because we referred back there last week when we looked at those end times and what was going to happen to, to Satan and all those that don't believe. But in Revelation chapter 19, notice what he says in verse 7. He says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. He saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Oh, I just want to remind you. <laughs> yes, in the garden, man was separated from God because of his sin. There in the garden, it was God that came and atoned for that and gave man a means of being clothed and brought back into the presence of God. That promise is made to all who believe. The time is coming when all those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, when we're gathered together there at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that God once again is going to clothe man, but not just in animal skins as it was in the garden pure white linen, the righteousness of man. That's going to be a permanent covering. That's going to be one that will last for all of eternity. You see, I don't know how many of you have ever studied maps very much, but you can take any city. Just take the city of London, for example. Now, there are all kinds of different maps of London. You can have aerial maps that's really getting a, a view looking right down, or you can have topography maps that take into consideration all the land and the way that it goes and the hills and all of that. You can have road maps for driving your car or walking maps that shows you a guide to where to walk and not to. You can have tourist maps that show all the places that, that tourists want to see. You can have maps of the waterways. You can have an, an underground map that shows where all the underground tubes go and many others. Now, all those maps are different, and yet they're all true. They're all accurate. They're all part of the same picture. Matter of fact, if you could layer all of them on top of each other, you could get a very full and comprehensive picture, but it'd probably be pretty confusing because there'd be so much there at one time. Individually, maybe they're a bit easier to grasp 
to understand, to get a realistic picture of your head of that particular view. It's much that way with all the different aspects of the death of Christ, the atonement. There are a lot of different words used to describe it. They're all true, but they're just a little different, a different view of the same thing, something that we have to concentrate on most of the time, one layer at a time, line upon line, precept upon precept. You see, even where we just read here in Romans chapter 3, I don't know if you noticed, there were a number of those pretty big words that several great doctrines there are speaking of the same death of Jesus Christ, the same righteousness being applied to us. All of it speaking of Christ's atoning work, but from different perspectives. It used words like justification and redemption and propitiation and, and remission just in a few verses. And yet... They're all concerning the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and his atoning work. Though they're speaking of different aspects of that work, it's all part of the same work that's done on our behalf that reconciles us to God, that puts us at one with God again. There are a lot of other great Bible words that show us all kind of wonders of this Glorious, atoning work of Christ. That's why it's so hard to define and describe in such a few words. That's why it's so hard to understand how it all works in God's plan. Remember, folks, it's not the teaching or knowledge of any great doctrine that'll save anyone from sin. People can know all these big words. They can know what they all mean. They can be able to define them and tell them to somebody else. You see, the doctrine, the teaching of the atonement has never saved anyone. It's the act of the atonement. It was the act of the atonement, and it's the act of the atonement that is still saving today. Jesus Christ sacrificially dying as our substitute on the cross to atone for our sin so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be reconciled to God. He paid our debt in full as the atoning sacrifice. Notice just a few ways that the Bible speaks of the debt that we owe. You see, in Luke chapter 7, verses 41 to 50, and we won't take time this morning to read all of these, but if you read those verses, you'll find it's almost like we're dealing with our situation in relation to what we have. Maybe as a bank, we're in hopeless debt, but Jesus Christ came and paid the debt for us. In Ephesians 1, chapter 7, it's likened more to the slave market. We were slaves and Jesus came to the marketplace to redeem us from that bondage that we were being held in. In Romans chapter 5, verse 16, it's more reminiscent of the law court. We are condemned criminals before the judgment seat of God and yet Jesus bore our penalty in order to set us free. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. 
there in relation to the temple. You see, we're seen as unclean Gentiles, excluded by our defilement of sin from the very presence of God in the temple, and yet Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice to consecrate us, make a way for us to come to the throne of mercy. Ephesians 2, 18 and 19, we see it in relation to the home. We are children in disgrace, far from home, and Jesus brought us back into the family realm. For Colossians 2.15, the pictures of a battlefield where we were captives, confined to the fortress of Satan, but Jesus broke in and set us free and delivered us from those chains, those bonds that were holding us. You see, in every one of these, we find ourselves in a debt that we cannot take care of ourselves, that is inescapable. God knew exactly what would happen to man in the garden. He knew the acuteness of the fall and all that would follow through as a result. He knew of Satan's plan to deceive and, and to tempt to bring man into that fall. In light of that, God planned for and promised not only the abolishment of that enemy for which we can rejoice, but in his great love and mercy, he also planned for the atonement so that man could once again be reconciled to his creator. Yes, in God's plan, he had to give man the choice. He had to let him fall, but he already had in place the means of the atonement. If you take away the foundation laid here in Genesis for the atoning work of Christ, I say that you undermine the entirety of the Christian faith, sometimes without even realizing it. It is foundational to our great faith. In Genesis 3, we see the sad picture of man's fall and all that that brought from the very heights of sinlessness to the depths of sinfulness. But then, just as assuredly as we see the abolishment of our enemy, that set in motion the very atoning for sin that would allow man to be reconciled to his creator. You see, we read about that seed, that one seed in Genesis 3.15 that God promised. We read in verse 21 of the atoning death that is symbolized there. Jesus, that one seed in verse 15, was the one that gave himself on Calvary, rose again the third day, that is our only hope and all that we need. I'll leave you with these simple promises. Matthew 20, 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, him, Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, 
ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Oh, yes. It was all in God's plan. In Romans 5.11, not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. That's the only time that the word atonement is used in the whole of the New Testament. That's the only time that it's used with our English word atonement. There's three other places where the word that's translated from the Greek and in every case, it's that same picture of reconciliation, of being reconciled, of being atoned. You see, the atonement symbolized in the garden was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it can be received today by simple faith. Sin is deadly. Sin is a terminal disease. And there's only one thing that can treat it, and that's the blood, the blood of the one it was prophesied in Genesis 3.15. We find that I remember reading the story of a little boy, and we'll call him Johnny, and he had a terminal disease, and he wasn't supposed to live. But he did miraculously somehow live. Two years later, his sibling, his sister, came down with the same disease, and they said there was no hope for him. The only hope would be a blood transfusion from somebody that had had it. And so the doctor calls in little Johnny, and he asked Johnny, he said, Johnny, would you be willing to give your blood to your sister so that she can live? The little boy dropped his head, and his little lip began to quiver. And, and then suddenly he looked back, and he said, yes, for my sister I will. Naturally, he was frightened. He didn't know what all this was all about. And the day came, and they were there, and they rolled them both in. And as they had them there to, to do the blood transfusion, little Johnny looked over at his sister and just had this huge smile on his face. And then suddenly, the transfusion started, and the blood started going. And sometime later, of course, little Johnny began to feel a bit weaker and things. And he looked up at the doctor, and he asked the doctor, he said, Doctor, when am I going to die? And it suddenly hit the doctor that little Johnny thought when he was giving his blood that it meant that he wouldn't have any life anymore. That by giving his blood to his sister, he thought it meant giving her all of his blood. And of course, the doctor explained to him. Now, little Johnny was willing to give his blood for his sister. But I'm saying before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ, when they saw you in your terminal state... <laughs> There's only one thing that could save you. That's a blood transfusion. There's only one person in all of the universe that whose blood would work for you. His name was Jesus. But yet, he said, yes, I'll give it. Now, he did have to die. But praise God, he rose again. But he gave that blood knowingly for you so that you wouldn't have to die the death that is caused by the disease that runs through each and every one of us. You see, today, we can take great hope, folks. We have a great faith in our Christian faith. And I can't even begin. <laughs> you know, one of the things when I first begin to look at this simple verse and the topic, oh, Lord, you know, how? <laughs> how do you explain the atonement? How do you explain what? 
Jesus Christ did for us? Well, I can never fully explain it. But I want you to realize today that he did it for you. He did it willingly. He did it knowingly. There were a lot of things involved there, but everything has to do with him atoning for your sin, him doing it so that you could be reconciled to God. And so here today, all the knowledge and all the religion in the world won't do it, but the atoning act of Jesus Christ and what he did will. If you're here and you don't know that Jesus, you need to today. You might have all the words. You might know what all they mean. You might be going through all this religious stuff, but that's not going to save you. You need the blood transfusion. You need to get down on your knees and humbly admit your sinfulness. Seek that transfusion that only Jesus can give you. Christians, oh, we've got the greatest promises in the world. We don't understand why he loved us this much, but he did. And today, Jesus atoned for your sin so that you can walk in the presence of God. Are you letting things today keep you from that presence when he came back to the garden? Are you trying to hide from God for some reason? The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient today. Maybe you just need to come back to him. Father, we thank you today, Lord, for your wonderful, wonderful, wonderful love, grace, mercy for us. God, I'll be the first to realize that, Lord, we haven't even begun to touch the surface of the atoning work of Christ. Lord, our purpose today is to help us understand and grasp that right from the very beginning, in the book of beginnings, you showed us that atoning work. You showed us where you were willing by the blood to cover us, to cover our nakedness, to cover our sin, and that Jesus Christ himself would be the one that would come one day that would not only abolish Satan once and for all, but, Lord, when he comes, that would receive us, that we would have that permanent clothing, Lord, because of simple faith and trust. All those who believe today, I pray for each individual, Lord, that might be under the sound of this message today, not because of what I've said. Lord, may they get a glimpse of the atoning work of Christ that was accomplished for them. May they accept the only clothing that is sufficient today. That's your righteousness. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.